Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Welcome, everybody, to the News Data Energy West podcast, where we talk about what's happening in the energy industry in the Northwest, California, and beyond. And today I'm joined with co-host Josh Keeling of Cadeo Group. And we're talking to former BPA administrator and Chelan County, former Chelan County PUD general manager, Steve Wright. Uh, there are few people who have more experience and are more you know, just saturated, soaked in the Northwest power industry than Steve Wright. So Steve, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Steve, you ran two of the major power wholesalers in the Northwest. You spent 13 years as head of Bonneville Power Administration. And then after retiring from there, you jumped back in to take over Chelan County PUD as general manager. And you just retired from there in December. How's retirement going so far? Good. You know, there's been a nice ramp down. I had some things that uh, were carryovers from my last job. I, um, had this invitation to testify before Congress around cryptocurrency issues and how it affects the electric utility industry and a couple of speeches about Western power markets. But uh, at the same time, I have had the opportunity to ski a lot more. I've never really downhill skied very much and always wanted to get better because my kids are better than me and it wasn't much fun when they were waiting for me at the bottom of the hill. So I've gotten <laughs> to ski a lot more, skied four days last week and uh, it's just been uh, good to be able to engage and, and make up my mind every morning, what do I want to do? And then go do that and not have a schedule associated with it. So yeah, I really enjoy it. That's great. Yeah, I love you retire, but then you go testify to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> it seems on brand. Uh, you know, uh, it was, it's just a very interesting thing. Um, I like to keep my mind active. I've I'm trying to write a vision statement for my retirement because I think these things matter, right? <laughs> Everybody should have a vision statement for their retirement. Uh, and uh, uh, my, continue to be an executive through your retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife is worried that I'm going to start thinking that I'm delegating things to her, but uh, that, that will not work. That's for sure. No, yeah, no, no, that <laughs> but, never goes but I over well. Well, I definitely would like to um, have, you know, active body, active mind, positive impact. Those, that's my vision statement. And uh, it's been nice so far. I've been able to do all three. Well, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I heard you talking to actually one of your, and on the Chelan County PUD podcast, uh, Power Hour with Chelan County PUD. Uh, it, you, you mentioned something that I, I want to kick off our conversation today with, that the number one issue that is facing the energy industry right now is climate change. And you gave some recommendations, uh, do all the energy efficiency possible, decarbonize the power system, use that decarbonized power system to decarbonize other sectors, and then go after the really hard areas for fuel switching like aviation. Uh, so four point plan, let's do it. I mean, it seems really doable. Let's just knock it off tomorrow. <laughs> but I, I mean, we're facing, I thought that was going to get a more, more of a laugh from you guys. But <laughs> I'll have to insert laugh track there. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's some huge structural uh, impediments to doing that. And it's, this is one of those things I start talking and I'm, I'm hoping that a question forms and I don't really have a specific question. I don't know if you've kind of thought of how to jump into there, but uh, I mean, one thing that struck me is, you know, utilities are handcuffed in terms of offering incentives on electrification. There's, like I said, there's a lot of structural impediments. Who do you see in the Northwest as, do we need somebody, some entity to take the lead? We don't have an organized market, so there's no Kaiso or MISO or anybody who can kind of drive the vision. So how do in this disparate organized, you know, what 17 balancing systems um, or balancing authorities, uh, how do you get the region to work towards a common goal like that and say, let's 
address climate change, have that be the lens for policymaking? Well, I do have a view about that. Um, so, look, first of all, we live in a democracy, and in democracy, we it's it's kind of messy because you have all these different jurisdictions, you have states and local entities, as well as the federal government, all being involved here, and uh, the the governments are responding to the people, and the people are telling them in different ways what they want. In some states, it's go faster, and some states go slower. Although there, I don't think there are any states that are saying do nothing. So, I think there is a general sense that we are going to be moving with respect to climate change to question of how far, how fast. Uh, I don't know that you need somebody to be in charge. I think what you do need is hopefully a common sense approach that looks at uh, how do we achieve the fundamental goals simultaneously. And there is nobody, I think, who objects to the idea that we want to be clean, affordable, and reliable. You know, that's the, the components. Now, again, how far, how fast? <clears throat> Some folks would do more to compromise cost, for example, or reliability. Uh, uh, but there are um, the challenges there with respect to uh, uh, the, the pace that you would go at. But that framework that you described at the beginning is not something I came up with. I mean, that's been around for probably 10 years. I can't remember where the first time I saw it. But it's the basic approach focused on what would be a least cost approach to carbon emission reductions, which should be our goal. We should be trying to achieve carbon emission reductions at least cost, just like we always try to achieve reliability at least cost. That's why we had least cost planning and integrated resource plans. And if you go after the energy efficiency, uh, you begin to decarbonize the electric sector, then you uh, move that decarbonized electricity into other uh, sectors like buildings and transportation, and finally go after the most difficult sector, which is uh, the aviation fuels, um, heavy duty use fuels. Uh, that Those are the places that make sense in terms of what uh, helps achieve our environmental goals but do so in a way that's cognizant of the fact that we have economic goals too. We, we need to produce jobs. Or it's a very important thing to produce jobs and that people have disposable income in their pocket. Uh, and in fact, you will undercut the environmental movement if you go too far on one side and you, uh, you impact affordability and reliability. One of the things that we worked on in Chilean and and then uh, PGP really picked up the ball and ran with it in a fantastic way was trying to find that least cost approach to carbon emission reductions in the electric sector. And I think uh, that the more we can talk about that, how do we achieve these three big goals simultaneously? And how do we work together to then follow a paradigm that is seeking to, um, to uh, make the public happy, which, you know, which is our fundamental goal in life. We we're trying to satisfy the public. Uh, in terms of environmental and economic objectives, then I, I think we can come together around things. So I'm, I'm actually optimistic that the conversations that we've had around these cost approaches to carbon emission reductions create the framework for being able to move out and um, move collaboratively. I, I, hey, Steve, this is Josh. I, I, I think that totally makes sense. And I it seems like one of the interesting things is that's particularly true in the Northwest, right? Like we have this abundant clean power resource. We have amazing infrastructure that's been built over the last few decades around energy efficiency program deployment, market transformation. Um, we have all these great examples of, of, of how we can make that change happen. And we have a lot of the, the tools in place. It seems like, not to mention that the industry as a whole has sort of we're getting to this point where a lot of these technologies are just make good common sense from an economics perspective, right? Like a lot of the decarbonization technologies we're looking at now, it's like, well, renewables just make sense. You don't, it doesn't have to be a policy thing. There's a lot of like utility scale renewables in certain places that make a ton of sense just on economics based on a levelized cost of energy basis. Same for electrification in certain applications. But um, I think the interesting thing is like, a lot of it is connecting the dots, finding there are new players that are coming into the market and new ways that that old players have to interact with each other. Um, I, I'm interested in sort of how you see the role of the utility evolving, um, you know, both in your time at Chelan and, and into the future. Um, 
in that new paradigm, because it seems like, you know, working with cities, working with transportation agencies, um, regional coordination is, is really changing. Utilities are public service organizations. I, I think it's always been true in public power land because by statute, that's true. Right. Sure. Uh, investor, and, uh, investor and utilities are as well, though. I mean, th this yeah. is my experience in working with investor and utilities. They recognize that they are public service organizations that, uh, you know, they're so heavily regulated that they need to be responsive to what the public is seeking in terms of their power supply in order to be successful as an organization. So the the key here, I think, is just the connection back to the consumer and trying to figure out uh, where is the, what is the consumer interest uh, and how do we solve for that interest uh, and work together to make that happen? You know, uh, we, we've gone through big discussions around markets and those kinds of issues. And a lot of that came down to, was there a value for consumers and there were different perspectives about that in the Northwest. And I've tried to actually mediate some of those disputes a number of times, and including in the discussions around Indigo and Grid West in the early part of this century, and, and then the PowerPool MC effort. Uh, that debate is mostly going away. I think there is a general agreement that markets, for example, will be able to help us achieve our economic and environmental objectives done right with the right governance and all the caveats that come with that. Of course. But, uh, but there is more of a coalescence of interest around that. And now the question is timing and who and, and when, and, and you know, it's some, some of those key thoughts about how you put it together, but there's a lot less debate about whether it should go forward or not. So I do think that, um, the, just the way that the industry is evolving, the way the public policy debate is evolving, that it's going to cause people to come together more in the next few years. Now, you know, maybe there's a debate about um, CAISO versus SPP and some of those kinds of things. But sure. the general trend line that the public was looking at this would say, yeah, but, but you're talking about a different way of moving wholesale electricity around, right? So yeah. some of these things... Uh, just the time is right for uh, more conversation and more ability to actually bring people together. Yeah, I, I, it, that definitely seems to be the case. Uh, um, and, and glad to hear that, that from you. I, I, I think the other thing is your point on like what the consumer wants, who the consumer is, is evolving a lot in that new paradigm, right? You, you talked about, you know, cryptocurrencies coming in into the region, but also things like how cities show up with resilience efforts, how fuels play, play a different part as we look at things like hydrogen or, or decarbonization of the fuel sector. Um, it, it, it's interesting, you know, that the players, I, my experience, I, I spent a number of years at Portland General Electric and, you know, the people that we were talking to down the road started to evolve, you know, you start talking to transportation network providers and things like that, who are folks you would never talk to before. So, it seems like there's also this interesting dynamic in terms of the job of a utility has become a lot more, uh, a lot harder or more interesting, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah. I, I mean, it, especially like EVs, I think are such a great example of that with uh, utilities getting involved with charging stations and offering incentives. I mean, it, it feels almost like in some sense, utilities are having to get into the, become car salesmen. Uh, I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but yeah, to Josh's point, it is incredible how much they're, they're evolving. Well, there are a lot of expectations early. And I'd say one of the biggest things that's changed over the course of my career is rates was pretty much all that the public mattered about in the first half of right. my career. Right. And, uh, cause we delivered reliable power <clears throat> and the, uh, environmental qualities were an issue but not the way they are today, and certainly not that they would drive a consumer to seek to get their own power supply because they wanted to control the environmental quality of the resource that they were receiving. And yet today you have the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, which is you know, very large companies that are choosing their own power supply because they want to drive the environmental quality even more than they want to drive the rates quality of their resource. So that's a really big change, and that does cause the... A, you know, a challenge for utility because you're 
trying to solve for that uh, uh, rate, affordability, reliability, clean. And the public may not have the same answers for all three. And so they're, you know, pushing for, uh, as individual consumers, for different outcomes and then seeking to find alternatives to the utility. I do think that that is going to make it difficult for utilities because this whole issue of I'm investing on behalf of a service territory uh, and where do I end up in terms of my risk of stranded costs and the rest of my customers uh, bearing those costs and particularly the affordability issues are going to be a a real challenge. And you can see it in California today with the debate over net energy metering. I mean, this is a heck of a debate going on there to the point where you have uh, companies running television commercials trying to change public policy about uh, how someone who puts solar on the roof will get compensated for that. Uh, so they, the fact of the matter is, I've always said, one of the things I like about being in public administration is the public cares about what you do. And today they care even more than they did 20 years ago about what we do in the electric utility industry. And so we can expect that we're just going to have a lot of input and a lot of trying to figure out how to balance issues, which is what government does, right? Government is constantly trying to balance an array of issues. Yes. No, Steve, on your your point on rates, I think is really interesting because it's, you look at things like DER compensation, but also just like time dynamic rates in general, as, as we saw in this last power plan, um, you know, the nature of energy costs is just going to change dramatically in, in, in the near near future. Um, how do you see, like, do you see the Northwest sort of like moving in the court California model? Maybe not the total California model, but at least like towards dynamic rates. Or do you think that the, that 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 the sort of like standard volumetric paradigm sort of is going to keep on for a while? No, I, I think we're headed towards dynamic rates. I, I yeah, uh, for really for a bunch of really clear reasons that make a lot of sense. Uh, we need consumers to be more involved on their side of the meter to help balance this power supply system. I am not optimistic, I will admit, about the reliability components right now. Uh, I've been very concerned about resource adequacy. Yeah. Going back to 2017, 2018, when we first started to do these studies showing what would happen if we went to 80% or higher clean energy standards in the Northwest. Um, that's why I've been so active in the resource adequacy issue and trying to uh, encouraged that we take that really seriously and begin to put in place standards that will hopefully then encourage utilities to be able to develop and to create the, the public impetus for development of transmission and generation that I think will be necessary. But the time frame that we're looking at with some of the, particularly the Washington state legislation and the time frame that it takes to develop resources don't seem to match up very well to me. And I think that means we're going to have to have a lot more demand response. In order to have really good demand response on this system, given how, you know, this is a totally different system than when we thought it was five years ago, because now we're surplus during the day. The, you know, the peak load hours are not the peak load hours of, um, you know, even, I can't even say our grandfather's system, of, you know, even of my system, you know, <laughs> they, uh, yeah. they're not the peak load hours. So we, we've got to find a way to get more demand response into the system. And it's, it, you know, we're at a lucky time. I think it's, I saw some numbers recently that 75% of the meters in the country are now smart meters. Uh, there's an awful lot of utilities in the Northwest that are rolling out more expansive smart meter programs. The smart meter programs are much better today than they were five or six years ago. They're connected at the back end to meter data management and the ability to be able to put in place time of use rates in a more efficient way than what uh, could have been done in the past. So I, the, the timing is good to be able to figure this out. And it is one of the reasons why we're going to need to move to market pricing, because yeah. we have got to find a way to be able to send that price signal through to consumers so that they can understand where the value is in the market and then have them respond, hopefully appropriately. Uh, there are like 10 different ways I want to dig into what you just said. Um, but let me, uh, in terms of that, those price signals, we've got the lowest rates uh, in the retail rates in, in the country. Technology is allowing customers, at least customers who have enough uh, yeah, upfront money to 
potentially create microgrids and go off the, you know, turn away from utilities. So given that there's, I mean, there's very, very little demand response in the Northwest. We're really lagging behind most of the country in part because of those super low rates. Do we need to build in the social cost of greenhouse greenhouse gases into our rate structure to be able to really send the necessary price signals to customers? Uh, yes, but there are two reasons that we're behind the rest of the country. One is our low rates, and the second is because we've been an energy-constrained and not a capacity-constrained system, so we didn't really have the incentive to go develop demand response programs. We, we were happy with energy efficiency and just saving kilowatt hours because that's what met the system need, and that has changed over the last 10 years, I would say. I, you know, we, we talked about this as Northwest Energy Efficiency Leadership Meetings back in you know, more than 10 years ago, that there's going to have to be a transition for the energy efficiency community to recognize that there are capacity needs there. Um, there are three primary components of uh, rates and costs, energy, uh, capacity, and carbon. And uh, what we are seeing is uh, more sophisticated markets that are beginning to place value on capacity and carbon. Uh, and we will need that in order to be able to send the right price signals in order to get the right kind of demand response and also to get the right types of generation to be built. Uh, the carbon pricing is happening. Uh, it's not a question of whether we should or not. Uh, it, it happens today in wholesale markets. Uh, the carb price, the California Air Resources Board price, sends a signal up and down the West Coast on a pretty regular basis as to what, um, what the carbon value is. And you know, there's been a pretty dramatic increase in that value in the last even six months. Uh, the capacity values have become a lot more clear since we had the, uh, the difficulties with uh, price spikes uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, the, you know, they were momentary, uh, lasted for less than a week, but man, they were high prices. And that sent the right signal to many people about, um, about the value of capacity. So it, it's happening right now. Uh, it's uh, increasingly sophisticated, I would say, uh, about uh, how utilities are able to keep track of those prices and then be able to send price signals through to, um, to generators and ultimately to consumers. Uh, and it is necessary because it's the only way you're going to get a system that responds. We, we need things to happen fast. It's, <laughs> it's the only way you're going to get things to happen fast, given the timeframes that are out there for carbon emission reduction strategies. Steve, I, I just wanted to follow up on your comments about uh, dynamic rates and, and sort of capacity generally, which uh, I'm, I, I totally agree wholeheartedly. I think, it's, I, I, I think there's a lot of transformation happening um, and there'll need to be more. How do you see the like energy, our traditional energy efficiency programs like evolving in that space? I mean, do you see like, what, what impacts do you see in sort of like, the broader region, like across different organizations and within utility programs, as we transition towards a more dynamic sort of need um, beyond just like demand response, which obviously has a big role there. I, I think they need a pretty significant transformation. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, you know, we've trained a lot of folks that kilowatt hours saved are the right thing to do. I mean, we've done that for 40 years now. And it's just not what the power system needs today. And this is the thing that has made energy efficiency so powerful in the Northwest is that we got the alignment right between what the power system needed and our environmental objectives. Uh, and I, and our feel, rates, like we had rates that were volumetric, right? So they reflected that as well. Right, that's exactly right. And so now we've got this paradigm shift that we need to make that will focus on when is it that is the high value time periods. And it's going to be focused on two things. It's going to be on the shoulder hour afternoon peak when the sun sets, and it's going to be based on temperature excursions, whether they be high temperature or low temperature, you know, more than three days, particularly more than five days, uh, what um, can be done to reduce usage in those periods. Uh, th those are, um, you know, those are very specific needs, but they're going to be what drives the high marginal costs on our system. And we do have this advantage in the Northwest of having this low cost system 
And it's true, our base system is very low cost, but the marginal cost on our system is pretty similar to the rest of the country at this point, because we don't have the huge advantages. Some, you know, we have, you know, it's easier to build wind in the Northwest than it is in the Southeast, but, uh, but they're, they're not the kind of advantages that we have historically enjoyed. So the types of programs that we would offer, I think, are the ones that uh, will have uh, that we'll be able to import from other parts of the country that we'll be able to learn from others, uh, which we haven't done in the past. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity here, and it, it's a matter of, of um, making that translation of what that need is that drives costs for consumers, and then making sure that your demand response program is tied to that. And I'm also going to say it's going to need to be flexible which we haven't been very good at either uh, because, you know, it's hard to deal with consumers and it's hard sending them shifting signals, but we're going to need to prepare them for the fact that what we know today and the way the system operates today, it may well operate differently five years from now. And so we'll want to stay in touch with them and stay, keep communicating with them about where the value is, and what actions they can take that will help to keep their bills low. I mean, it seems like that's one of the big challenges in terms of shifting the culture of customers. Like I've, I've got three kids. I my yeah, a job. I got other commitments. Uh, my attention is being pulled in 10 different directions. And it just kind of seems like that's the normal now. The savings of dynamic uh, timing, time of you know, dynamic time rates, DR, those other tools to bring in that flexibility. Uh, that's got to offer some big economic incentives to me for, to get my attention. And we kind of addressed this. It sounds like you're optimistic about that. Uh, where do you see, like, how, how much work is it going to get to get to that point, do you think? Well, we have to make it easy for them. Uh, no question about it. I mean, I'm not going to spend time wondering about what the wholesale power prices are at four o'clock this afternoon and whether I should stick my laundry in at three o'clock or six o'clock. None of us are going to do that, I think. So we, we have to figure out ways to be able to make it easy for them. And, and this is where technology comes in. This is something I am very intrigued with. Um, a few years ago here in Chilean, I uh, hooked up with the guy who's the head of our local hospital. And we had lunch and we were talking about how we were concerned that there wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, jobs for our kids here in this community. And, and we could see all the technology jobs in the Seattle area. We needed to figure out a way to get them to come here. And that sent us off on a journey where we started an angel investor network and, and started to become more connected to venture capital funds, having nothing to do with my PUD work. This is just a you know local interest project. Boy, have I learned a lot from that. And it turns out that a lot of it was valuable to me as I think about where the utility industry is going to. Uh, first thing I learned is the way that we make decisions in the utility industry is so vastly different from the way they're made in the venture capital world. You know, we're, we're pretty slow. Um, we're cautious yeah. because, you know, there's a high expectation. These are costs that customers will bear and you want to be sure they're going to make it. And the, the one out of 10 hit rate in the venture capital world would never work in the utility world. But on the other hand, what the guys are really good at in the venture capital world is when they do hit, they come up with new technologies that really do change people's lives. And, you know, I, I've seen these massive changes that are occurring as a result of things that seem like wild and crazy ideas just a few years ago. So that kind of change is coming towards us. That ability to be able to make it easier for consumers uh, to just say, would you like to sign up for a program that uh, we will mostly take care of this for you, you know, and you'll be able to check the box as to mm. what kinds of things you are willing to endure. Um, so in order kind to get of a lower like uh, taking the energy authority, their role for smaller utilities in terms of power planning uh, and applying that to customers. Is that kind of what you mean? Uh, well, it could be an organization or it could, it could just well, or, be. I mean, a company like that. Uh, yeah, it, it could be a, a third party company. It could be your utility. I mean, mm. The technology will be available uh, in the market, I think, in the next few years to be able to make it easier for consumers where you just sign up for a program 
And then you, like I say, you check the boxes to which elements of the program that you want. Uh, and then it's run for you and you're not having to worry about it because you're not going to worry about it if you're not going to spend the time thinking about it. That kind of change is not something that we tend to see in the utility industry uh, because it's it's so radical, so different from what we're accustomed to. But there are disruptors out there and the disruptors are thinking through how to reach through to consumers. And utilities are going to have to figure this out or else there will be companies that will come in and will displace yeah. the utility and provide that value to them. Yeah, I mean, it's requiring a huge culture shift from not just customers, but and maybe more importantly from utilities. Like you said, by design, we're move slow, move deliberately, uh, and now they're having to yeah, adopt that more venture I don't want to say maybe venture capital mindset. Um, hopefully not to the point of what is the, I forget what company it was, Apple, I think, whose mantra was move fast and break things or something like that. Hopefully they don't get to that point because that would be disastrous. Uh, but I just want to clarify. So you don't plan on doing your laundry by looking at wholesale prices on the ICE index. <laughs> I do not plan to do that. No, okay. I can't imagine trying to, convince my family to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I think the other thing is like, um, we, I think we underestimate how much change had ha has happened in the power sector. Yeah. Like we forget that like energy efficiency was not like a normal thing at one point, like that was a huge transformation that happened. And we, I, I think we perhaps underestimate our ability to make new change happen. So, you know, their time of use rates exist all over the world in, in a lot of different places. And it's a very normal thing for people. Um, and a lot of the investments that we need to make are things that we probably should be making anyways for a number of reasons. A lot of the, the stuff you're talking about, Steve, in terms of, you know, peak and like weather sensitive loads, like that's HVAC and weatherization and, you know, um, water heating. And those are things that like we've worked on in the past but it will just become more valuable in, in, for a number of reasons. You know, we, we need to build up thermal storage in the, in, in, in end uses as well as on the power system. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity there. I think it'll be hard, but, but, but we definitely, there, there, there's a lot of infrastructure there. So. And I think we're going to need to recognize that there are disruptors out there. You know, there are people out there who believe that, yeah, their role in life is to disrupt uh, incumbent industries and that they look at the electric utility industry and they have others and said, sure, why not? <laughs> we, we can take that yeah. over. Um, and I, it's going to be harder, I think, because for them than it would be for others because you do have this reliability problem that is so critical and you can't just walk in and, and uh, you know, my, my telephone may go out in the middle of this call or my, my Zoom call may go out in the middle of it. And I'm not going to, you know, go crazy over that. But my electricity goes out and I do go crazy over that. Yeah. <laughs> so th th this is a little harder than the other indices to disrupt. But we shouldn't think that there aren't people out there trying to figure out how to come in and deal directly with consumers and go around the utility. Well, you bring up an interesting point, Steve. Like, I, I think that's, you know, uh, in, in a lot of the work that I do right now, we do a lot of work with aggregators and like how aggregators participate in wholesale markets. And I think that's that is another important question that that is different about things like demand response and like more dynamic DERs is that you have an ongoing relationship. And so I think, how do you see the utilities role sort of evolving in that space? Because it, it is different than energy efficiency. You put energy efficiency in. You, there's a widget. You walk away. And, you know. You come back when their their heat pump fails, and you give them a new one. That's different than like, you know, flipping their HVAC. You know, ramping it up and down every day to respond to wholesale market prices. Well, I think you set that up really well. It's a much more interactive process than energy efficiency has been in the past, right? Because you're responding to these price changes, and moreover, the, the wholesale market is changing all the time. And, you know, for example, uh, you know, you get these big price spikes and you really, really need the demand response for yeah. a week out of the year. And you've yeah. got to have the kind of conversation with your customer where it's like, hey, this is the time when we really need you, right? We're going to give you a lower rate, but it's for this moment. So we, you know, you've got to 
got to react to this at this moment. Yeah, I, I, that's um, that's a change for us in terms of yeah. the way that we do business. And you know, there are lots of businesses out there that have way more customer interaction than we do. And you know, we're going to have to learn from other industries about how to have those kinds of interactions. But I'm going to come back to it. I don't think we're going to have much choice because the no. difficulty of maintaining reliability on this system with the challenges we're going to have to build large transmission, large central station, renewable resources, uh, there's just increasing resistance to that. Uh, the, you know, I, I admire Pacific Core and Idaho Power for the decade plus that they put into Boardman Hemingway. Uh, but it's a it's definitely a warning signal to us all that it's going to be really difficult to build big transmission. And yet we know we will need big new transmission in order to make all these renewables work. Over on this side of the mountains, um, I'm discovering there are solar facilities that want to locate up uh, above where I live to the east of here uh, on wheat fields, and there's opposition to that. And we've all seen the opposition to the wind projects in the Tri-Cities. You know, this is a new thing in the last year or two that uh, there had been this feeling that we'll locate a lot of renewables in rural areas and they will open their arms wide and say, come on in and we'll be happy to take the property tax benefit. Uh, I'm not as confident of that now as I was a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, it's a, it, that's a good point. I mean, I think, I think his, like it, historically, like not even that long ago, there was this sort of like, there was the mentality around it's all central station. We're going to do big renewables. We're going to do a bunch of transmission projects. And then on the other side, oh, we're going to do everything distributed. We're going to do DSM. We're going to do DERs. And it's going to, and I, I feel like we're getting to this point. It's like, look, we're going to just try everything because it's all hands on deck because it's all hard. Um, so uh, it's going to be a, 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 a lot of different solutions for sure. Hey, and to that point, what, what do you see? small modular nuclear I mean, does that play a role in this especially in terms of our uh, given our capacity needs to meet the clean electricity standards i think it has to you just run through the numbers of uh, what it takes to be able to accomplish these really high uh, carbon emission reduction goals and i don't think you can get there with um, re renewable resources alone I, you know, I spent uh, the last couple of years chairing the APPA Climate Change Task Force and dealing a lot with utilities in other parts of the country. And they, they have such a bigger challenge than we have. I, you know, yeah. I, it always seemed hard to me here. And then I you know, go spend some time with my friends in Missouri and Wisconsin and Florida, Ohio. And you, know, you just look at, wow, you, they, they have coal plants that have been built since 2010 that they're trying to figure out how to deal with. And, and so you've got a big cost issue, but you also have a big reliability issue because they don't have the same accessibility to renewable resources that we have in the West. And it seems like it's going to take something like uh, a modular nuclear operation in order to be able to, if we're going to be really serious about hitting these goals, then it will take something like that. I will say it's going to take one more thing, though, something that we don't have today. It's going to take a clean capacity resource. And uh, hydro is our one real clean capacity resource. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we will do everything we can to sustain what we have in order to hit these uh, aggressive goals. But it's going to take something beyond that. I'm not sure what it is. I, the, the batteries are cool, and, but four-hour duration is not enough. It takes a much longer duration, especially to deal with the temperature excursion problem that we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, hydrogen is an option, but you know if you want the clean hydrogen, then it's coming from water, and uh, that means that uh, you've got some loss of energy there. And so there's a you know a lot of challenges in terms of getting there. But but one way or another, we are going to have to find an answer to that question. As a hydro guy, how are you feeling about uh, pumped hydro and some of the projects that are look promising in terms of moving forward? Uh, I think their odds are actually growing and getting better right. because I'm going to come back to, you've got to have clean capacity. Right. Well, it's expensive. And, you know, the, I, I think the biggest problem for the pump storage hydro has been the upfront capital costs, you know, it's yeah. generating that much revenue when the, remember you're, you're playing off of the differentials and we're going from a period when we were 
a high price market during the day and a low price market at night. And we're flipping that. So yeah. from, a, from a pricing standpoint, you, you're bringing the, the prices closer and closer together and then they'll separate again. Well, yeah. in that period when they're closer together, it's harder to make the case for a, a high uh, capital cost resource like pump storage. And yet you can look down the road and say, well, it sure seems like this is gonna be incredibly valuable. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it, it is a this is like that very tricky period, right? Where I feel like you can you kind of saw some of that with the the latest power plan where they're like wrestling with this. It's like this is what's happening right now, but we know like we're gonna get to this this area where it flips. I mean, it does seem like that's a place where some of the utilities can kind of take take a leadership role. And you've seen some of that, like where sort of taking getting out there and saying, like, look, we're gonna, we're gonna buckle down and we're going to, we, we know we're going to need these resources and, and sort of, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Long duration is a, it's a tough business case to make, but, but it, we all know it's going to matter. We're all just waiting to figure out when. It bears mentioning that in the power plan, I mean, one of the most controversial aspects was the like about face they did on the, uh, loss of load probability projections with their new upgraded model. Uh, I mean, what what do you make of that? Uh, I, sorry, I don't want to. And Josh raised a great point. Please address that. But also, <laughs> I have to ask about the power plans. Uh, you know, hey, everything's going to be fine after you know later this decade. That said. They, they made the point that it's still worth investing in capacity. They're not saying, don't worry about it. Well, I think to Josh's point, capital allocation decisions will be very difficult for utilities because yeah. they, they do have to choose between these different types of resources. And a lot of them right now are bet on the come, especially for clean capacity. You know, how, what's the, uh, the resource that will actually be the winner in the marketplace? And yet I need it very quickly. I mean, if we're going to shut down coal plant usage by 2025, um, that's not very far away. So I think the capital allocation decisions are very difficult. I'm glad I'm retired and don't have to. <laughs> uh, um, with respect to the loss of load probability question, you know, I have not been able to get myself to a point that I'm comfortable with uh, the way that played out. And it, maybe it's my own fault for not spending enough time on it. I, I did spend some time with Ben Kuhala, and I know he's a really bright guy and very thoughtful. Uh, I just have not been able to get myself to a point where I can say that I'm comfortable that uh, we're going to meet the reliability objectives of the region with an imported uh, variable energy resource. Uh, you know that we used to call that non-firm. You know, in the Northwest, right? it was non-firm hydro. Uh, that's what the solar and wind is. A, a certain amount of it is just non-firm. And we generally said, we can't count on that to meet firm load. And it seems like there is a component of that discussion that's coming up in this debate. And it it um, instinctually is, is not very comfortable for me. I think the problems are bigger. Well, yeah. I... I it's, I mean, it's hard to do like the, our models, like getting our models to adapt to this new world that is changing so rapidly, I think is part of what we're struggling with, right? Is that, you know, I mean, you see this back to the long duration stuff. I mean, that's been the tricky thing is like our definitions for what peak capacity was have been relatively simple. And therefore it was, you know, if you were a, a cheaper resource always looked better and if you defined capacity as a four-hour need, then you four-hour batteries would get built because <laughs> that just made sense. That that wasn't necessarily about what the system absolutely needed. It had to do with what the model defined as as capacity, right? And we just need, we're asking a, for a lot more nuance out of the modeling that we're we're doing today. We have a lot more questions, and we have there's a lot more shades of gray on on what we need to know. I think that's exactly right. And, and uh, yeah, in, in some places uh, or in some ways, I'd, I'd say that's okay because we have much better tools today. I'm going to come back to the technology revolution that we're going through, right? Yeah. The computer capabilities that we have today are so much better than what we had 30 years ago. And the ability to model really unusual circumstances is good. The underlying data is still evolving, 
Okay, so we're yeah. learning how to run these resources that are still relatively new to us. Yeah. So we can make projections about how we think things will work, but we don't have the same historical database that we've had with other resources. That makes oh, 100%. It yeah, I mean, that's with such a paradigm change, we don't know what we don't know almost. Right. And you guys were leading the way some at uh, Chelan in terms of setting up the Hydro Institute um, to collect that big data and optimize uh, your hydropower operations based on these new tools. Yeah, I mean, that was an effort really led by the, the current general manager there, Kirk Hudson, who, uh, who did a great job putting that together. The focus there was in trying to understand, in particular, the operation of the turbines themselves. It, it wasn't so much uh, being able to understand the fuel supply question, but just the turbine operation. And I think the conclusion that I came to a few years ago was, when you think about hydro, uh, our greatest opportunity for being able to increase the capability of the hydro system is not in new turbines. Um, there are some advantages that you can get out of that, but they're relatively modest. I think the biggest opportunity on an aging hydro fleet is in reducing the amount of forced outages, being able to mm -hmm. uh, understand what's going on inside these big turbines that are not really that susceptible to uh, opening them up and taking a look <laughs> how everything's going yeah. uh, and trying to find predictive metrics that will help us to understand when a turbine is getting into trouble. And if you can catch it before really bad things happen, you reduce your forced outage time potentially significantly. So we, you know, we are going to be looking for ways to be able to increase the capability of all of our clean capacity resources and hydro you know, is our natural advantage here in the Northwest. So we want to do the best we can with that. I think the other hard part that we have to deal with is planning inherently relies on assumptions around operations. And as you're sort of talking about like the how we operate assets is and needs to evolve considerably over time. Um, so I think that's the other part of it that we that we really struggle with is like making sure that operations and planning can sort of talk to each other in a more coherent way because how often do we see, you know, planning models make, you know, say this is how the region's going to dispatch its assets and how things are going to go down, and then we get into the field and that's just not the case, right? Um, so having a better common language between those two will will be so critical. Yeah, that is a classic problem. I think it's probably true in every industry, but it's certainly been true in the oh, electric yeah. industry as long as as I've. Uh, been doing it. I, I started in the planning function and I know the operations people uh, didn't think very highly of our planning work. <laughs> we didn't understand why they couldn't understand yeah. what was uh, entirely yeah. clear uh, about yeah. the, the great work that we were doing in planning. Uh, yeah, th there are there are definitely opportunities. There continue to be opportunities to be able to uh, to work together better. I am I'm excited about some of the, again, new technologies that allow us to be able to communicate more like we're doing right here on a Zoom call. And if used appropriately, I think they can help to break down some of those silos. Um, I'm not a big fan, candidly, of everybody work from home for just that reason. I don't. I think it actually increases your silos. And so the challenge is going to be to, I think, get people into the office, but also at the same time, continue to be able to use Zoom and other tools so that uh, if you've got somebody working out at a hydro project and somebody else downtown, that they could communicate a lot right. quicker. Or, you know, I, the um, the Microsoft HoloLens, I've always been kind of intrigued with, where you could have someone in a hydro unit walking around and showing somebody back in the office, hey, look, there's a crack right here. What do you think that crack means? Yeah. And be able to, or be able to talk to somebody at, uh, at, at one of the... Um, hydro vendors, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles away about this thing and, and be able to take action on it more quickly. So technology, I hope, will help us to break down some of those silos between operations and planning. Wow, that is, uh, sounds so sci-fi to think about that. Uh, and I'm glad, yes, work from home does not seem like a sustainable future People are social creatures, all the little conversations you have because you bump into somebody, you know, uh, does not, we're not appreciating the value out of those little interactions that are unplanned, un unscheduled, unlike a Zoom call. There is one last thing I do need to ask you about before we let you go. 
in college, I understand you, you initially wanted to be a sports writer. I did. I went, I started my first couple of years and, uh, and got a journalism degree. Oh yeah. Um, so what, what got you with your, uh, you know, first settled on looking to be a sports writer? Oh, I, you know, I really would have loved to have been an athlete, but I wasn't good enough. Um, and so I thought I would write about it instead. And at least then I could go to the games. And, and uh, I did, when I was a sophomore in college, get the football beat, which was fantastic because you got sent to the press box and the hot dogs were free. And I just couldn't believe that I could have a better job than that ever in life. Uh, but then I discovered that I, as much fun as it was to watch the games and write about them, I got involved a little bit in politics and found that it was a lot more fun to actually do things that made a difference in people's lives rather than just talk about things where other people were making a difference in people's lives. And um, so I decided public administration was what I wanted to do. And I, I mean, I think you can definitely check the box off and having made a difference in people's lives. Uh, you've been an institution in the Northwest and um, yeah, I can't think of many people who've been more consequential to our power system than you, Steve. So I really appreciate you taking some time to join uh, join us here on News Data's Energy West podcast. Um, you can, er, listeners, you can subscribe to us on all the major podcast platforms and please rate and review us. It helps us show up higher in the uh, search functions. So Steve, any parting thoughts? Otherwise I'll, I'll let you go and just, uh, yeah, thank you for your time and thoughts. Um, well, I want to thank you guys for the work that you do. Uh, it's, it's really important that we learn from each other. Really important that, and, uh, you know, clearing up has done this for, 40 years now, you're finding new ways to do it with something like this podcast, which I think is a really fantastic tool. You know, I was talking earlier about how technology can make a big difference in helping to accelerate our ability to be able to work together. And uh, so I, I um, want to appreciate you for the work that you're doing and say, I, um, I, I really enjoyed being in this industry. It feels like something that's really important that makes a difference in people's lives. And I couldn't have picked a better uh, industry to be in for all these years. And so thanks to all of my colleagues out there that I've had the chance to work with for the last four decades now too. Great. Well, and I'm sure they have not heard the last from you. It's hard to imagine you sitting still for very long. So Steve, again, thanks for taking time to sit down with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Steve. Bye. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. 